Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which seeks to bring you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. On today's episode, Richard and I speak with researcher and writer William Jamal Richardson. Born and raised in Buffalo, New York, William is currently a PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology at Northwestern University. His research focuses on understanding the development of modern American cities as settler colonial spaces, particularly how urban conflicts over space are reflections of settler colonial logics of property and sovereignty. This academic work influences his fiction writing, which is mostly science fiction and fantasy that speculates on how to survive the mess between oppression and liberation. By the way, before we get into the interview, I just wanted to remind everyone to like, share, and rate our podcast on iTunes. Also note, in addition to the podcast episodes there and on SoundCloud, Spreaker, and elsewhere, the episodes are also now on Spotify and YouTube. To learn more about the project itself, which by the way, isn't just a podcast, be sure to visit us on social media, particularly Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us by looking up Left POC, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C. Finally, don't forget to check out our Patreon page. There, we have all of our episodes, links to additional work that we've done beyond our podcast, and free books. Our content is always 100% free on the Patreon page, but we welcome donations of a dollar or more to keep the project running. We put all Patreon contributions back into the podcast to pay assistance and our guests and to make sure that we've sent a donation in their honor for each episode to an organization of their choice. To learn more, visit us on Patreon and that's patreon.com slash leftpoc. Now on with the show. Hi, everyone. This is Wendy. I'm here today with Richard. Say hello, Richard. Hello. Um, And we're also here with our special guest, William Richardson, who we'll be talking to in just a moment. Um, As I did in the last podcast episode when we were talking about uh, Colonizer and the Colonized, it is a summer episode, which means there is an air conditioner on in the background. (laughs) So my apologies for all the extra noise. Um, This is going to be the case until I go to Brazil in July. And so it'll just be one more month of this. uh, So be patient with us. But uh, there is an AC in the background because it's Baltimore and it's 90 something today. So forgive me. Um, But yeah, we're so excited to have William here today with us. Um, As I mentioned in the introduction, you know, he's a scholar and I actually found out about him by way of Twitter because Twitter is where all the action happens. Uh, But also where I happen to come across a lot of people who are in academia, but also critical of academia and who use Twitter and other forms of social media often to talk about their research, their activism, and other things uh, that they've been up to. So really excited to have William here today. I wanted to start out actually, William, to ask you just like, can you tell us first of all, how you ended up anyway doing a PhD? Because sometimes making that decision can be tough. I know you've been very vocal about some of the challenges um, in terms of being able to balance family life and academia and sort of the the issues within the community and how that all works out. So can you talk a bit about your positionality as well um, and your decision to do a PhD? And and on top of that, tell us a bit about your work. Oh, no problem. Um, first, you know, thank you for having me on. 
I really appreciate y'all, you know, wanting to hear anything about what I do. Um, but yeah, I guess I should start by, hmm. Okay, so my path to PhD just really started with growing up in Buffalo, New York. So for people who don't know Buffalo as a city, it's on the edge between Lake Ontario and Lake Erie. It's a border city between here and Canada. Um, it's also one of the most segregated cities in the country. Um, and most of the Black people who live in that entire region are all like pocketed on the east side of Buffalo, which is where I grew up. And so growing up in that environment, there's just the political being politicized because of the segregation, but also my dad and my mom um, and my grandparents are all activists, right? Um, and my media family, my dad was mainly the activist. My mom um, didn't do as much activist work, but she was very much a supporter and really taught me my sense of empathy and like caring about what happens in the world. My dad was a member of the African People Revolutionary Party. And so I was growing up like hearing things like, you know, America is a racist state. We were going to marches. Like I had a certain sense of like a critical view of the world already. And so especially by the time I got to high school and college, I was going to be a biochem major. But then I found out about sociology and the sociologists in the class were like talking about similar things to what my parents were talking about. Now I come to find out later, the way they talk about it is very different, but you know, that's when I, um, when I heard about the McNair program in undergrad, that's when I um, just figured out that like, oh, there's this thing called graduate school in academia. And I could actually go in there and like learn how to research all these systems of inequality and stuff that my father had taught me about when I was a kid, right? Um, and that's kind of what started me down that path. So I went through McNair um, throughout undergrad. They did a great job preparing me for grad school. Um, note, if you are thinking about graduate school and you're undergrad, like definitely, you know, go for, like look for a McNair program, get involved in it, especially if you're a first generation college student, it's the godsend. But um, I ended up going to University at Buffalo for undergrad and the master's and then Northwestern for PhD. And what I'm settled on now um, is, or research where I'm settled at now, is um, studying urban settler colonialism and particularly looking at the interaction between anti-Black racial segregation and settler colonialism in cities. Um, and the reason why I came to that work very much is like tied to the activism. So one of the things that was like a staple kind of Pan-Africanist like saying in our home was we're stolen people on stolen land. And especially when I learned that the concept of settler colonialism was a thing um, when I was in my master's studies, it, those two things kind of came together as like the kind of basis of my whole research agenda, which is understanding the relationship between Black people and settler colonialism, and then also between Black people and um, Indigenous people, right? So my dissertation is trying to kind of start start one end of that conversation um, by looking at cities. So I was trained as an urban sociologist in my master's studies. Um, shout out to Robert Alman, who studies immigration and segregation at University of Buffalo. He was a great mentor of mine, um, but wanted to be critical of how urban sociology 
um, talks about anti-Black racism, but never pays attention to settler colonialism. And then on the other end, in settler colonial studies, they'll mention, they'll often mention cities, but never really mention how the anti-Black racism within cities becomes part of that broader structure, how it intersects with that structure. And so my dissertation work, which is like the main stuff that I'm obviously working on right now, um, is trying to get that get that particular relationship. And so um, what I'm trying to do is, I guess, translate urban sociology into settler colonial language and use that as a basis for later on, start talking more directly about this relationship between um, anti-Black racism and segregation cities and settler colonialism. So that's what I'm working on right now. I don't know so, if y'all want me to talk about the case studies a little bit, just, you know. Oh, yeah, sure. Please go into that. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so so I decided to come back home to Buffalo to do the research because Buffalo is this, like, really unique place, which when it was found, it was the frontier for the United States, basically. Um, but it was also a highly planned region. So when the American Revolution happened, um, Buffalo, like this area of New York State, um, was not part of the United States. It was conquered by the United States as part of the war. Um, and it was gifted to the Holland Land Company, who like literally went and plotted out the entire region and sold these plots of land to create all the towns and cities in the region. Um, and because of that, Buffalo has this really strong colonial nostalgia and the structures and language. Like we still call the, the area the Niagara Frontier, um, partially because it's like the frontier of the United States with Canada, but also because it was like the literal frontier of like colonial holdings for a long time. Um, and so I decided to use Buffalo as a space to understand better how settler colonialism operates in cities, uh, while also being attentive to the presence of Black people within Buffalo and our own struggles and how those intersect. So I used three case studies to look at that because I felt that in order to really understand um, this relationship that I need to focus on how people claim space because um, that's what colonialism is about, right? It's going to another place and claiming space. And most urban politics is also about claiming space. And so I used that as like the anchor around which I picked my case studies and did my analysis. So the first case study was actually looking at local ethnic history museums and looking at the rhetoric and the exhibits these museums use to talk about how they came to acquire this land or came to this land if you're talking about immigrant population. Um, and that was interesting because the it became very clear. Um, people talk about museums as propaganda, but it's not until you really sit with these exhibits and stare at them for hours on end that you really understand like how intentional and how consistent the uh, propaganda structure is. So, like you know, the museums never start with indigenous history, or if they do, they start with this very um, the Native Americans of you know this tribe roamed this area before and then it's like something 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 now Chiptawaga or amherst or buffalo is now in this land or they'll talk about the founding of the city and then in the middle of the museum they'll mention the quote-unquote native presence um so in that way the settlers are making a claim to land while also like disavowing all the violence they did to actually get it um and then the second case study i looked at a local struggle we had 
um, up until last winter around uh, Columbus statue. So there's a place called Columbus Park that has a Christopher Columbus statue. It was erected in the 50s by the Italian American Society of Western New York. Um, of course, the city like kind of you know co-funded it, and there was this whole struggle when the same when the the Confederate statue struggle was happening to take the statue down for similar reasons, you know, representation of slavery, genocide, racism, um, and the city eventually decided not to take it down. And I wanted to look at the rhetoric that people were using on both sides to make an argument for why the statue should stay or why it should go. And like the short version is what I've been finding is that both the anti-statue and the pro-statue people lean on their status as citizens mm -hmm. um, as a way of justifying, like, because we're citizens, therefore, we own this city, we own this public space as citizens. So it's a claim of ownership. Um, and because we own the space, you should, the space should reflect our, our political interests. And so the Italians are arguing, the Italian immigrants are arguing that we've been here for all these years, we contribute so much to the city, so the city should reflect the things that we care about, which is Columbus. Whereas indigenous people and the and their like white and non-indigenous allies are all either saying, well, this, you know, this guy represents, you know, hatred against us, we're citizens too, or this was our land before you people came and tried to steal it. Or for the white people, like we're citizens and we just don't want this here. Basically, like we contribute to, so we should be listened to. And then my last case study, which is the one that I'm currently putting the most work into, um, because it's a more recent addition to the project, is looking at um, gentrification in Buffalo. So similar to the second case study, actually really similar to both, there's this idea of how people justify their claims to space. And they're similar to the second one. I'm looking at the rhetoric people are using to justify why something should happen with space. So here it's between the University of Buffalo and the city and Collider Health, who've been building up um, what's called the medical corridor. So they rebuilt our, recently rebuilt our medical hospital, or sorry, our general hospital, our children's hospital, and a bunch of research facilities in order to try to make Buffalo the center for medical research and healthcare and whatnot. You know, Roswell Cancer Center is in Buffalo, which is like a world-famous cancer research center. And that expansion has been encroaching on a bunch of Black communities on the east side of Buffalo, where pretty much all the Black people in the region live at, including this neighborhood called the Fruit Belt. All the names, all the street names are named after fruits, hence the name. Um, but the people in that community, of course, have been fighting back, trying to argue for why this encroachment it shouldn't be allowed, and asking for like inclusion in the plan. And I'm looking at, again, the rhetoric that both sides are using to make their argument and invalidate others. So like, for instance, I have this whole discussion about why does how long you've lived somewhere justify why you should stay? And, not the, and it's not me saying that the residents shouldn't use that argument, but like thinking about what what kind of logics exist in our society that they think that's a compelling argument. Um, and so that's the last like major part of it. So at the end, I kind of try to synthesize these things to think very seriously about like, what does it mean to claim space in the city? Where do those logics come from? My argument is that it's drawing on the seller colonial, seller colonial understandings of property and land. And that really, when settlers made their first claim to the space, 
um, the rhetoric they used to justify why they were there became the kind of terms on which everybody else that came after them had to also make those same arguments. Or I had, to, sorry, the terms on which um, everybody else had to also had to use to make claims to space. And so there, it's like even people fighting against gentrification or fighting against racist statues get sucked up into this like settler colonial logic. And I hope that we'll be able to imagine other ways to, you know, protect our livelihoods, protect our homes, protect, you know, spaces that make us safe without also lean on a logic that ultimately um, reinscribes and strengthens and, and justifies more the existence of the state that caused all the suffering in the first place. So that's where I'm at with my research so far. So I just had a quick question too, because mm-hmm. something that has come up a lot in our previous discussions of colonialism is this idea that in the United States for a bit, especially in the 60s and 70s, there was language around um, how Black Americans were a sort of, you know, they and, and Latinos and indigenous people for sure, but the way these sort of um, groups that were marginalized on the basis of both race and socioeconomic backgrounds um, were sort of forming an internal colony in the United States. So the U.S. is already a colony, um, a settler colony, if you will. But then on top of that, there's sort of a colony within the colony. Um, And it's an argument that I've, or a a sort of framing that I've seen reiterated recently by Chris Hayes. And he sort of did it in a way as if like no one had ever talked about this before, (laughs) Um, whatever. But, um, But it seems like his framing is a little bit different. It doesn't seem to be quite the same, coming from the same sort of revolutionary, um, backgrounds that a lot of these activists were using it in. So I don't know if your research touches on any of this, but when you mentioned the idea of gentrification in particular and the ways that, for example, Black people, I'm assuming in this case, were also making claims to land, um, how that sort of fit into our larger discussion about is there this is, is the idea of having an internal colony made up of people of color in this country, is that does that does that framing still hold any value? Because I've seen it dismissed, but I've also seen it kind of bubbling up back to the surface again in recent uh, discussions. Yeah, um, it's funny that you mentioned like internal colonialism because my so in our department we have to do a qualifying paper where we do like a big overview of some subset of our field. So mine was on race in the city, obviously, um, <laughs> and. Within that, I actually talked about uh, internal colonialism. So very fresh in my mind is like 50 articles about this topic. So awesome. I could, yeah, I could like talk for days about, it, but um, I won't because the listeners will not appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, to that, I, okay. So what I argued in the paper was that internal colonialism thesis was the internal colonialism thesis was a very good half step is what i called it towards like a a fully revolutionary understanding of like what was happening in cities but also in the broader society right because of the trends they were looking at right being isolated in cities or being isolated in other kinds of you know pockets of space and then having your labor exploited by outsider like yeah that actually does mimic you know what we see in other colonies in a lot of ways but the problem is like you were saying like the united states is already a settler colony so like the idea of a colony within the colony like it makes sense but also doesn't because 
part of being the colony, and this is some of the critiques I was seeing from other scholars during that time, is like, what's the land base, right? Like mm -hmm. the problem is that particularly for black people, like we are indigenous to this territory. And I think a lot of the reason why the term colonial became popular is because we didn't have any other kind of language, right? To really talk about what we were seeing during that time. And that's why like, I won't be one of those people that go around poo-pooing the idea um, in the, the theory, but I do think like we have to move beyond that. Cause like one version of this you see is like gentrification is a new colonialism that people like to argue. Um, nowadays especially when you talk about gentrification in new york but see the problem with that is that in order for something to be a colony right it had to be in yours your space and then somebody else came to try to take you over the problem is none of this space was ever ours right we were all brought here from other places and then incarcerated basically incarcerated in these spaces like mm -hmm. white settlers and this is stuff that i'm finding in my research right white settlers um already see themselves as the owners of all this space like they already always see themselves as like having ownership over space and therefore when they come into a poor black community for example and gentrify it they don't come in thinking that's somebody else's space they see it as uh what glenn cohart when he talks about gentrification of indigenous neighborhoods um what he calls herb nullis which obviously is a, a relationship to Terra Nullis idea that this land is owned by nobody. And so they see this land as all mm -hmm. as being empty because black people aren't people. We don't have a claim, we don't have a claim to ownership over land because we're not settlers and we're not indigenous. And therefore clearing us off the land is not a a crime in the eyes of like the white settler state, right? Um, and that's where the internal colonialism logic breaks down because, like, if we're going to follow that to its logical end, like, what's our claim to space? What's our what's our claim to sovereignty that we're going to find in here? And at least for me, especially as a Pan Africanist, where um, we very seriously take we take very seriously the idea that even our relationship with the African continent is complicated, that is still our homeland. Like, it just is, right? even if we don't have a particularly good relationship to it all the time. But like, we can't make a claim to any of this space. And that's why I, instead of talking about gentrification as the new colonialism, it's just like the same, it's just settlers doing the same colonialism they've always been doing, right? They're just reclaiming something they left for a while. It's like a kid putting down their toy, right? Like a toddler, they're playing with a toy and they leave to go do something else. Another kid picks up the toy and they come back and because they remember playing with it, they like know it was mine, and they cry for them to give it back. It's that type of thing. Um, but I do think, though, that having conversations about eternal colonialism is a good thing because I think like the struggle of like its contradictions and where it doesn't quite live up to the the data and what we see happening in the world, and obviously indigenous concepts of colonialism and space and ownership um will push us to like a better synthesis and a better analysis i definitely think though that like the chris hazes of the world so i, mm -hmm. I that's evidence like acting as if this concept hasn't been talked about before is <laughs> evidence of how how much that idea was suppressed particularly in sociology it was it was a very strong concept in the 60s and 70s especially in the black sociology movement was um, kicking off in the discipline. And when those scholars ended up being marginalized or pushed out of departments going into the 80s, 
a lot of these like kind of colonialism um, analogies or colonial theories, whether like weak versions of that idea or strong versions of that idea, they disappeared with those scholars. And so the reason why somebody like Chris Hayes could come in and like, you know, talk about it um, and act as if it's new is, is because of that repression, which I think, you know, we'll probably touch on that later, thinking about like academia, the structure of these disciplines. I mean, that's a really important lesson towards, you know, on that end. You mentioned about uh, the claim to space and and Wendy mentioned about our recent reading and, and t discussions about colonialism and that uh, in the connections with gentrification. One of the things that kind of, one of the questions I came to was, uh, where do black people in the U.S. from the U.S. have a claim to space? And if it it sounded that you were alluding to that there's a relationship to be worked out with the the mother continent, and but I, I it brings concerns of uh, essentially black people in the U.S. acting as uh, settler colonists into Africa, and also uh, I'm reminded of Liberia, and I'm kind of curious about how all of that fits in how you were articulating that. No, that's a very good question. Um, this is something I've talked about this on Twitter a couple of times, but it's like one of those things where you bring up, bring this up, and this is like the existential crisis we all have. It's like, okay, we can't do that. Then what do we do? Right. Um, in regards to this ter this land, right, Turtle Island, North America, you know, whatever term you want to use, um, I think Black people, particularly in the United States, that we have to I'm trying to think of how best to talk about this. Okay. The the idea of a nation state, right? Like in like European like social thought is always is always built around this idea of of a claim of exclusionary claim to space, particularly the exclusionary part, right? You know, mm -hmm. state sovereignty is always about we're the only people who can decide what happens on this space. Um and I think a lot of like otherwise radical black organizers and thinkers um, don't interrogate the fact that we think about sovereignty in very similar ways. Um, so when we talk about like what space, where can we be, right? Where can we find a home? I think the solution to figure out a way of doing that where we don't harm other people is we have to first like, I guess, um, dissuade ourselves of buying into that logic of the nation state or uh, particularly the exclusionary idea of the of a nation state because even when you look at um in concepts of indigenous sovereignty and you look back at the treaties they made with settlers those most of those treaties were essentially we you know have traditionally been on this land and this treaty is certifying that we can share this space right so indigenous people, a lot of indigenous nations had concepts of sovereignty where they had a relationship to land and they were going to protect that relationship, but they also weren't going to bar other people from having a relationship to that same land as long as they were respectful of it and took care of it. Of course, we know what happened. The settlers mm -hmm. did not do that. But I think particularly um, for Black Americans that I would like to see us to develop a, a mutually beneficial relationship in a similar way with indigenous people of this land, right? If we're not going to go back to Africa and, you know, of course, like that's a, a 
idea that's not feasible in a lot of ways, but like we also don't know the future, so I don't I can't say it can never happen, but in likelihood that it won't, um we should build that kind of relationship with indigenous people that we understand that this is our homeland, y'all have a particular relationship to it, and we want to become part of that relationship, right? And respect, you know, the boundaries of the land and respect the boundaries of your people. The problem is, I think a lot of people, black people, um, because we just live in the side we live in, can't wrap our heads around that idea, right? Because it was something mm-hmm. I struggled with too. And you actually, in actually, when you mentioned Liberia, that's a great example of that of the problem with not dissuading ourselves of that idea. You have black Americans who were enslaved got emancipated or they went directly from being enslaved to being in Liberia and they were all like um what's the word indoctrinated with this idea of their superiority basically a settler mentality right and mm-hmm. so they went to Liberia and established an exclusionary ownership over that land under the guise that we're intelligent people from the west we were we're educated we speak English we're Christians and we're coming to civilize you and because we are superior to you, our claim to the space is superior to yours, which is textbook, you know, settler colonists. Um, if they had a different way of understanding their relationships and land to those people, if they understood those people as part of this global nation, this global collection of communities, they would have, one, just not just showed up. They would have actually negotiated with the people there to ask them if they can come and live with them. And they would have assimilated into the the ways of that land. Or at least if they bring their own culture, they're not going to bring the most harmful version of it that's going to destroy what they're coming into, right? It's like going to your friend's house. Your friend tells you take off your shoes, right? Even if you don't like taking off your shoes, you're probably going to suck it up and do it to respect their space. Um, and so I think in, in both sides of the ocean, our relationship as a diaspora to both Africa and to um, indigenous people need to be built in this idea of sharing space. And I think that even when I say that, it makes some people uncomfortable because it's like, okay, well, we don't own anything. But it's like, why do we think that we need to own something in order to be safe? And I don't have like a real, like, well-articulated answer to that, but I know that question has to be asked in order for us to move forward. Thank you. That was exactly the kind of answer I was looking for. <laughs> um, on that note, because I, this is obviously a topic that is a hot one, to say the least. Um, but the other day there was, you know, a hearing about reparations and, um, to, you know, moving forward with something like HR 40 um, and several celebrities and, you know, thinkers spoke at it. Um, but it's been uh, an issue that's been, you know, fairly on the minds of a lot of people in recent, basically, I would say the last year, although certainly that's not the beginning of the movement and won't be the end. Uh, but I think in terms of mobilization and politics around the idea of reparations has been uh, very much at the forefront of discussions, not only among uh, people of African descent, but people throughout the country, right? Like, how, what are we going to do about this? How are we going to deal with this? And how will other people feel? Um, you know, being a part of giving back to African-Americans who lost, uh, you know, back pay at the very 
most basic level. Um, so I'm wondering, what are your thoughts about reparations? And if not just the idea of reparations, but also the reparations debate, um, because I know a lot of the things that you just raised, the issues that you just talked about are <laughs> issues that, to say the least, come up a lot in the discussion of reparations. So I'd love to get mm -hmm. your thoughts, um, you know, however long you'd like to talk about this, but I'm curious about how you feel about the idea of reparations, what kind of forms they could come in to be most suitable if you do believe in them, and also uh, what do you think about the, the current debate over the issue? So my relationship to reparations is really complicated because on one hand, um, anything you could get out of the sellers, I'm down with, right? Like that's like, you know, the visceral feeling. But then I also know that there's like repercussions for you know, that the politics and that behavior and getting something right. Um, on a very basic level, I think that land reparations is just off the table, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. um, as somebody who's not interested in getting justice at somebody else's expense, I don't think that that's just something that, like, as a principal thing, I'm not interested in. Um, for us to get land reparations would mean taking land that rightfully belongs to indigenous people um and again you know because we live in the seller society right if we get land it's of course that exclusionary private property pieces of land that we would be getting and that brings us in conflict with you know the indigenous people's land and i think also because you know we didn't have land taken from us in the strict sense of the term it doesn't make sense for us to be like repaired in that way um, mm -hmm. But then I guess, you know, the other form of reparation that people talk about is like just resources, money, education, checks, whatever. That's also a complicated thing for me because like, um, I mean, you have the ADOS movement, right? And their whole argument is that, you know, only African-Americans who come from a particular lineage um, should be able to get reparations and like they're very, like obviously exclusionary of black immigrants who or especially recent immigrants to the to, to here um and the problem is that any reparations we get like if you think about this right if you think about wages we worked for x amount of years for x amount of dollars that went to the coffers of the settlers what they did with all that that money and all that profit that they made off our labor is invested in their colonial empire and so <laughs> if we get reparations one of the ethical concerns is that our our labor power, our labor profit, I guess you could call it, is tied up in America's global empire, right? The only reason why we could get reparations is partially because the United States has is continuing, right, for the past 100, 200 years to pilfer the rest of the planet. Um, and that makes my feelings about it very complicated because it's like you're not actually going to repair what you took from us by giving us a check or giving us resources. But what is gonna happen is that we're laying claim to a chest of money that has blood all over it. And it's like messed up that what was taken from us is like been tainted by all this other stuff the sellers decided to do with it. But unfortunately, we are still responsible for at least grappling um, with that. With all that said, right, I'm really of the opinion that on one hand, there's no form of reparations that doesn't run into this ethical conundrum of one kind or another. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I also think that reparations is completely insufficient. 
because people often talk about reparations as like a way of making America play and making helping us catch up to um, by Americans economically and socially. And it's like, why do we want to catch up? Right? It's because right now we're like, you know, being crapped on in a whole myriad of ways, and we want our people to be able to survive. But the best way to make sure we survive is to get rid of the system doing the abusing in the first place. Even if we get reparations, you still have a capitalist economy that's going to exploit somebody. And and basically what we end up getting, we're just better competitors in this like messed up market. Mm-hmm. And I don't see that as like from my perspective anyway, I don't see that as like freedom or you know a, a ideal outcome the ideal outcome is just to get rid of the system altogether and we can heal ourselves we can fix ourselves we can give reparations to ourselves why are we asking the people who own all this wealth own all this land own all these resources illegitimately and like asking them to give us a piece of it mm-hmm. i'd rather just you know take everything you have from you and we'll all this colonized people will distribute it amongst ourselves to me that's what actual reparations should look like but that's also a position that would you know obviously tell you um wanting to you know destroy the settler state and believe that the settler state can be destroyed and that's those are that's a gulf that's hard for people to get across and i understand that um, but there's a point where, as you look at the history of the society and the trajectory of it, and you realize there really isn't any other permanent solutions other than that. Mm-hmm. And again, it sucks that we're like forced in this situation where we got like fight to the death when we didn't actually be in it. But you know, the part of the point of oppression is that it's not fair. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's definitely true. It is not. Um, no, but I, I like one of the things that you mentioned made me think of something I've said recently where, you know, lately there's been this group popping up where like if you talk about reparations for black people or African-Americans, right, then they'll say, well, what about like people in the rest of the world who've been, um, you know, harmed by war from that started with the United States? And I was like, give them reparations too, like give everybody reparations, you know, um, and and I get a lot of pushback with the question of, because I mean, I'm in favor of reparations, but like I also um, understand and like often reflect on many of the issues that you talked about and like the the perspective that you have precisely mm-hmm. because of this like continual tying us to empire. Um, but one of the responses I always give to that and also to the question of like, but if we gave people what they were actually owed in today's currency, then it would bankrupt the United States. And I'm like, and? <laughs> you know, exactly. Are you expecting me to be mad about that? You know? Do you have now, any more good like, news? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like just go ahead, then try it. Like give everybody who's owed um, reparations, reparations, and then like, oh, and by the way, you know, rebuild their communities and rebuild the communities of people around the world that the United States destroyed. Let every immigrant move here if they want to or whatever. Like, you know what I'm saying? Because there was also um, there was an article that came out recently in the New York Times of a guy who was saying basically like he wanted to create a busing program of sorts. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of half joking, but that's basically what it boils down to. He was saying, like, we should let all immigrants from countries that the United States have has uh, destroyed come here without any basically without any any issue. Right. So to immigrate here. And I'm like that's okay i guess it sounds nice and 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 egalitarian or whatever i don't know what you would call it but the problem is that that doesn't help 
the areas that we destroyed, right? Like mm -hmm. we're just saying move out of your country that we destroyed, leave people who I guess can't come over here over there. Um, and then anyone who manages to create, you know, like to get the funds to come to the United States can come and screw everybody else. I mean, that's, it sort of creates a sort of system that's, that's basically the international equivalent of busing instead of fixing the problems that um, this country caused abroad. So there's a, a I don't know, I, but I just think that the, the pushback on any sort of reparative measures that boils down to it destroying the United States economically, I don't have any problem with. That's that's the least of my worries, you know. Um, but yeah, I really appreciate your your comments on that. And I think it, I think it makes, it raises a lot of questions that are uncomfortable for all of us, right? Um, it makes it more difficult to, because that, that, on the one hand, what you said is totally valid. And then on the other hand, I'm like, how do you have, how do you present this argument that you just made in a nuanced way to like, say a white person who is against reparations, mm -hmm. then it puts you on, I mean, it puts you on the side of being against reparations, but for very different reasons, but like those reasons are going to get kind of, um, flattened. And so I wonder like, how can we talk about this issue in a way that pushes for, for, I don't know, like pushes for some sort of redistributive measures, um, you know, like even if, because even if we're talking about a lot of measures, right? So how do we, how, I mean, this is sort of an abstract question, but like, how do we even have this conversation in a way that's nuanced with people who are both for and against reparations without sort of getting lost in that shuffle? Yeah, it's hard to, like, like, on Twitter, when I try to, like, I guess, publicly brainstorm about a lot of this stuff, it's hard to have that conversation because people, um, I think, are afraid that if they take these, you, you know, think of in a riskier way, um, that they'll end up, like, not getting anything at the end of the day. Um, my best way of talking about this, or at least, I guess, where I've kind of settled myself at, is that if people want to fight for reparations, that's fine. I will make sure to bring up these, you know, complicating issues. And they need to be, like, what I would fight for immediately, right, is that we need to address these complicating issues so that we're not simply just co-opting ourselves to the empire, right, on yeah. one hand. But then also while doing that, making sure people realize that this is not a sufficient solution, right? Like, this is something that will help, but it's not sufficient. And that's, I think, like the point where we could kind of move forward from that. Because I think once people really start breaking down and like understanding like how capital works, like when they like start thinking about, oh, we give every black person a check, what will happen to the economy? That's when you start to see that, oh, yeah, not a lot of things are actually going to change. Because mm -hmm. the gulf between even all the black people with like 100K in each of our bank accounts versus the settler population we still have infinitely less wealth than them. And if we're going to go buy land or buy resources or build back our communities, where are we buying all the materials to do that from? From settlers. Right. So I think like going down that, that line of conversation, I think is the best way to demonstrate to people that reparations isn't the end point. It, if, if it does happen, it's a starting point. Um, so that's like the conversation with black people, right? But if we're talking to like white settlers, I take a similar stance as I do to 
white settlers being against decolonization. So you have a lot, especially white people on the left, who talk about like, you know, overthrowing capitalism, building some version of the socialist United States or whatever, right? And they assume that that's like a fair outcome for everybody. But of course, for particularly for black people and for indigenous people, like that new socialist state is still hoarding, still has all the the wealth and land that never belonged to in the first place. Like all you do is all you're doing is having socialists basically inherit, you know, stolen goods and then like distributing it evenly amongst the seller population. Mm-hmm. And they are obviously uncomfortable with this idea that if you're going to try to build socialism in the United States, you need to have the permission of the people on the people on which this all the resources you're going to use were built. Um, and you know they'll push back and be like no that sounds like some fascist ethno state type stuff you know what y'all gonna do send us back to europe or push us into the sea da 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 and i'm like you could negotiate like fair terms that's like good for everybody because none of us are interested in like harming y'all just for the sake of it most of us aren't i'm (laughs) sure there's some people that are and i don't blame them but like me in particular i'm not interested in like randomly running around slaughtering white people like for what um, I just want to be able to live safely, right, with my family and my friends and my people. But it's like if you're going to refuse to negotiate, you're going to refuse to acknowledge this very obvious harm that you're doing, and you're going to refuse to, like, do anything about it, you're going to lead yourself to this revolutionary – you'll lead more people to taking on this revolutionary argument and stance that I'm talking about. So it's like either negotiate fair terms now or eventually this is going to collapse in on itself. It's not going to be good for any of us, but especially not y'all. Um, and it's, it feels like a hard line to take, but like, yo, I don't know what else to tell you. Like, if you keep being people for long enough, like, they're not going to be nice anymore. And right now, us asking the federal government to give a reparation is the nicest version of us coming for what's due that you could think of. Like, we're not running around, like, occupying the White House or send fire to police stations or doing anything violent. We're going to Congress saying, do a study on reparations. That's it. If you're opposed to that, as far as I'm concerned, whatever comes next, that's on you. Same <laughs> thing when it comes to decolonization, like, and, and even um, occupying, you know, foreign countries. You keep going and messing with people, eventually they're going to they're going to respond and you can't get mad they respond to you know with the same energy you're giving them mm-hmm. and i would hope mm-hmm. that particularly white leftists and liberals will understand that but judging by history i'm not really sure if that's a convincing argument but like that's a, that's the best i have for them i think my priority especially now is just to make sure that particularly the black community and you know the indigenous communities that you know, I'm trying to build relationships with that we're prepared to take care of ourselves and do, you know, what we need to do to, like, keep our people safe. You know, the white people, you know, hop on board, sure. If not, then, you know, we'll see you when shit hits the fan. Yeah, I think that there was a lot in there that was uh, very valuable. And some of the things that kind of stuck out to me was uh, the mention of essentially, like, reparations, uh, being in some ways kind of taking of, of blood money and how there's a, a risk or a, a, a balancing of somewhat legitimizing the colonial the colonist or colonial state 
by uh, reaping its rewards, even if they're just if they're past due for uh, work rendered. I, I thought that was an interesting uh, aspect. And then uh, another one was going back a bit was the the statement that you said that you've kind of uh, lived with for a while, but I think uh, some people may just hear for the first time or have only started hearing these kinds of things recently are, was uh, we're stolen people on stolen land. And I think a lot of black people have reconciled the first part uh, with their worldview and their life. But the, I think a lot of the political tensions that uh, you were discussing, you and Wendy were discussing uh, rest in that second part of uh, reconciling being on a stolen land with mm-hmm. uh, with that and and what that means for our future and for uh, where we lay claim or where where we find ourselves in a, in a future and I think that the your point on negotiating and coming to terms and for the reasons that you mentioned makes sense and I think part of the reasons why that doesn't just kind of initially spring to mind for uh, people is something that I think relates to a lot of the things that we touched on so far, which from my experience and how I kind of uh, articulated it is uh, what is phrased in the rhetoric or discourse as sort of a apolitical integration, but I see more as indoctrination of hegemonic myths through unchallenged propaganda. And what I mean by all that, I guess, is that, uh, that like, there's all these supposedly apolitical spaces where uh, we're supposed like uh, allegedly we don't talk about politics or they don't exist, but in reality they're reinforcing these hegemonic colonial myths uh, that uh, permeate throughout society. One of the like examples that comes to mind is when Kaepernick took a knee, and how one of the common refrains is, "Oh well." You know, football's, uh, you know, not political. We don't do politics in football. I don't need the, you messing up my football with politics. And it's like, and uh, immediately some people pointed out, well, there's all these huge nationalistic displays and all these other aspects that are real. Mm-hmm. Important. We call the, 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 these are owners. These people have owners. <laughs> these black men running on the field have owners. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's there's a lot of reinforcements, reinforcement of these hegemonic myths and what we, what a lot of people consider a political spaces. And uh, I think, uh, and I think we may touch on this a bit in, with academia moving on, and, uh, is that uh, there, that these allegedly apolitical spaces act as really strong reinforcing uh, measures for those hegemonic myths. And then when we try to present these kind of uh, alternatives of ideas of something like negotiating with indigenous people over uh, where black people will uh, end up in a, in after the destruction of colonialism uh, is so hard to kind of wrap the mind around because for our entire lives, we've been bombarded with these kind of ideas and like, and the other example that comes to my mind is, you know, this is my block, you know, this is my block. And uh, Jay-Z, you know, says, oh, mm-hmm. well, the solution is don't don't fight over, don't shoot each other over neighborhoods that your, your mom's paying the rent in by the neighborhood, which I think relates back to what you were saying about uh, the kind of uh, reinforcing the colonial ide- or ideologies in which, you know, well, now we need exclusive ownership to this. That's how we gain liberation when i think you're right in that it it it's premised on uh an unjustified and unrighteous claim to the land in the first place but a real uh 
like a reality of, that we're here and that there's likely not anywhere for us to go. Yeah, that's uh, I really like your framing of like thinking about like how these ideas become indoctrinated people, um, especially as you grow up, right? Like by the time you become an adult, you had twenty years of these like hegemonic concepts being like funneled into you to a point where you can't see them. So yeah, I appreciate that frame. And I think that's definitely true that a lot of, of especially what I see in my own work is just like these like uninterrogated concepts that seem really innocuous and, but you dive into them like a couple later, you're like, oh wow, this is like really terrible actually. How can we like actually believe this? Um, it's amazed yeah. me how much I've discovered of my own in that in since I've moved further to the left and started in, in investigating revolutionary theory and all that. It's been amazing in my own worlds. So I can only imagine for those that haven't done any of that work yet what they can discover. Mm -hmm. On that note, um, so the other day I was at Walmart. I know. So go ahead. Throw the stones. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's like, there aren't very many uh, affordable grocery stores and stuff around here, interestingly enough. Um, but anyway, I was at Walmart and there was a Fritos bag and it said salute the troops. Like apparently Frito-Lay is having like a, a salute the troops. I don't know what it's, I guess because we have 4th of July coming up and Memorial Day was just the other day. Um, but it's just sort of fascinating, as you said, Richard, on how hegemonic all of this stuff is and like ubiquitous, like everywhere you go, um, there's a reminder of like which people we're supposed to be honoring and which people, you know, don't deserve any respect or humanity or anything. Um, but what I think is interesting and sort of helps us segue into the next topic is like, it's amazing how colonialism and just sort of, um, you know, corporate power and things like that are so, they find such easy, quick ways to articulate themselves, right? The commercialization of all of this rhetoric is very apparent and easy. It sticks with us, right? Um, we remember these slogans and, and you hear them all the time and it just becomes part of your lexicon. Like it's how we speak to one another, you know, respect the troops or honor the troops or whatever um, without really pushing us to ask questions about what all of that means. So on the flip side of that, though, you have these really complicated topics like colonialism, like capitalism, you know, how, how do we get to a point where we can talk about those issues with the same ease that I think, you know, corporations and the government and colonizers, to be quite frank, can talk about the issues that keep them in power. Um, and so I, I'm curious to know, like, how you approach this as a as someone who in academia when it comes to articulating your rather difficult concepts, especially through a medium like Twitter. And I asked this um, also thinking about a recent controversy, like very recent, a couple days ago, I believe, um, of someone who had put forth like several tweets, um, but that were worded in a way that I don't personally, I mean, I'm saying this as someone who's doing a PhD, but I have to go back and like reread more than once to fully wrap my head around what they're trying to say. Um, and I'm, I guess because Twitter generally is a place, is a space where a lot of rhetoric is simplified, right? So we can quickly grasp what's being meant. Um, it's interesting to kind of look and see tweets that are written in a way that's not as readily, I guess for me at least, I'm speaking solely for myself, not something that I can just look at and grasp what right away. So I'm curious about your thoughts on the idea of not only simplifying or like reducing very complex ideas into a more palatable and easy to digest way um, online and how that's worked with your own research. And then also what your thoughts are on this sort of 
a longstanding debate about quote unquote accessibility and particularly what that means as a scholar who's not only of color himself, but working on um, communities of color in, in the United States. So to kind of answer your, the first, first part of the question in terms of like, you know, how do we be able to like push our ideas with the same ease that colonizers do? I honestly, and don't take this, please don't take this as like me being myopic <laughs> or, you know, negative, but I don't think we can. I think the point is that what we're trying to give people, like ultimately when you look at most systems of oppression, right? The ideas that anchor them into the world and like animate them are these really simplistic representations of humanity. All of them, right? Whether you're talking about patriarchy, talking about, yeah, whether you're talking about patriarchy, um, gender, sexuality, um, whether you're talking about capitalism, like there's these very simplistic ideas about how humans work and that's why they're easy to grasp, right? Um, most of what we're doing, right, people on the left of, you know, depending on what issues they're working on, is is trying to get people to understand the world is much more rich, diverse, and complicated than this capitalist, uh, patriarchal, you know, cis propaganda would have you to believe, right? Um, so I think in terms of thinking about accessibility, like starting at the question you were asking originally, like how do we, you know, get our, our our ideas and the goals that we have for the world like at the same level like as the colonizers have like their propaganda is really simple straightforward ubiquitous like can we get there too and you know not to be you know negative or anything i don't really think we can because like what we're trying to get people to understand is like that the world is much more complicated than this propaganda is telling you that it is and, and then also getting people to value that complexity and that thing, part of getting people to understand and grow with like individual ideas of like gender fluidity, understanding trans people, understanding disability, understanding other um, cultures, you know, deconstructing their ideas of race and thinking about ancestry in a more complicated way is getting people to value th this idea of complexity itself. Because even in like the kind of like reactionary, like, spaces and like plc you know bi plc communities i mean a lot of that's depending on them trying to come up with a, a simplistic way to understand our oppression right um and then of course it misses things and it harms people and that's where it becomes a problem um so like you know talking about accessibility on with academic ideas and then also thinking about twitter right twitter lends itself towards um like you were saying lends itself towards like being simple with our concept, being short with talking about things. And I think for all of us academics, for the most part, in order to be on Twitter and talk about our work at all, we have to develop the skill to like simplify things. Mm -hmm. But the key is to figure out how to simplify it without destroying the complexity of it. And that's something that I don't think I've figured out how to perfectly do because I continuously write, you know, 15 tweet threads. <laughs> because I can't do the thing in like one or two tweets, right? right. Um, but I think even that format, you know, simplifies things in a way where people could follow along without having to figure out how to read an academic research paper. Um, so I think even that like is, you know, a balance between those two things. But 
I think particularly, I think for people who are academics who are not interested in revolutionary change or interested in like moving like the people writ large to like another way of thinking, that balance between, you know, accessibility and complexity is, uh, is obviously that is not important to them, right? Because mm-hmm. they're writing for the academy and the academy only really values complexity, right? But I think for those of us who are interested in, you know, actually making change in the world, we have to. I, I would say it's a requirement that if you call yourself academic and the quote-unquote revolutionary, that accessibility has to be one of your top goals, because otherwise, who are you writing to? I mean, it's okay if you want to write to yourself or only write to your field, but you also can't lie and think that that's having an impact on the world at the same time, because how can they have an impact on people if they don't understand what's being said? Um, And so that's like my basic kind of stance on accessibility, that that has to be like at the forefront of not only like how we write about our research, but what ideas, topics, and questions we pick, right? So like for my research, um, I try to, I try to pick complex questions um, but use like fairly straightforward um, methods to get at it, right? Um, so like just literally like what's the order of how these museums are like talking about the history, right? And does it seem like there's obviously like an agenda to bury certain pieces of history in there? Or with the Columbus statue, right? Like what are you appealing to in order to make your argument? Like these are like questions that I think anybody can, can understand you know, given like a, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, front ending, like a little bit of theory or whatnot, but mm-hmm. it's like they're complex enough questions that challenge enough of the way we think about the world that it still does that work that we wanted to do. But like, it literally took me like three years to like come up with this research question and then the three case studies, right? It took me a long time to figure that out. And so it's just, I think I think accessibility is not just about figuring out how to use simplistic language, but it's about like, you know, finding that balance. And I think that there's a lot of us um who are doing better job than we give ourselves credit for, given like the platform is like hostile to like complex thinking and all the fact that we get anything done on there um is amazing. But I do think like there's more that we can do. And I think a big part of that is gonna be for us to um you know share with each other like you know share more with each other our strategies and ways of doing things because like particularly for academics we're not, we aren't taught to talk to the public mm-hmm. like at all like you don't get tenure for you know helping the community you don't really yeah you don't get tenure in most fields for helping the communities that you're doing research in you don't get tenure for um doing really accessible twitter threads you don't get tenure for writing blog posts about your research you know, they call that service still, but like we all know that what they really care about is academic publications and top tier journal, which of course only values complexity. Mm-hmm. And so I think where Twitter is very important as both a medium to be accessible but complex is also for us as academics and intellectuals to be able to communicate with each other how to do that, not only on that platform, but elsewhere. Well, like one of the things that you mentioned too, in response to this this debate of sorts about accessibility, is you talk you emphasized a lot about like what does the community that you're working with think about what you have to say and your research, right? 
Like, can you talk a little bit about that? Because you had you, the way you framed it was sort of like from the other side, like, do we determine accessibility or not? Oh yeah. So there's a story behind that. It's really short. So my original <laughs> third case study for the dissertation was looking at block clubs and, you know, block clubs are literally like you put a sign down, you say, this is X, Y, Z neighborhood. Like you're naming this land, you're naming this space and you as a block club organization organizations claiming some kind of sovereignty over it to you know force people to clean up their lawns try to get rid of drug dealers have relationship with the cops whatever right it's and like so neighborhood was, watch sort of yeah yeah neighborhood okay. watch stuff is also another example of that right so in buffalo the block clubs and neighborhood watch organizations are one in the same um okay. but yeah but these are all that's another claim to space so i was like oh it'd be fun to go study that so I went to the Mass and Block Club Coalition meeting. So all the block clubs and that take that are in this Mass and District, which is most of the East Side of Buffalo, all come there once a month to like share resources, get information from the city on different things. Basically, a way for the city, especially to communicate things in neighborhoods through the block clubs. And so you know the people who run the meeting were so kind to give me a platform to talk about the research and the um, get research participants. So I wanted to interview block club participants and kind of ask them how they interact um, with the, you know, what do you see as like the goal of a block club? How are you doing on a daily basis? How do you feel about people who aren't involved? Do you feel like you have more of an ownership of your neighborhood? You know, questions like that. And mm -hmm. so trying to explain why I was doing the research I completely fumbled it. Part of it was like the social anxiety, but part of it was that I realized in that moment that the purpose of the research overall, which is, you know, urban settler colonialism and understanding claims of space it, within that is not a question that's relevant to anybody in that room. And there was no way for me to do my due diligence in explaining that research without being unethical that also didn't like what's the word, um, didn't, that wouldn't like just confuse everybody or make them disinterested. Yeah. And so, you know, I have a few people sign up who said they would help simply because like I'm a black grad student, they want to, you know, support kids from their community and I love and appreciate them. But I ended up having to um, drop that, like drop it, um, that case study. Cause I realized I was like, I can't do this research cause it's not relevant to the people who I'm talking to. So I can't ask them for their labor for something that um doesn't you know benefit them and that they don't understand and not don't understand as in like they're not smart enough to understand but don't understand that they don't understand why this is going to help with any of the issues that plague them on the day-to-day -day, right in their communities because you know what i'm doing is is basic research right it's not applied research per se and so you know i had to like you know take that l and go back to the drawing board there was also just a tip for anybody doing snowball sampling. Um, when you have small pockets of people, like block club organization, it's also really hard to keep a snowball going, like to have people refer you to a next participant. So if there's any grad students who are listening to this, um, if you're doing snowball sampling, be very careful about where you start your snowball at. That's just a, a little thing from a fellow interview researcher. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, going you know, going back to the Twitter thread, um, that whole situation is what prompted me to like make that statement that if the, you know, the people who should really determine if something is quote unquote accessible or not 
should be the people that you're talking to. Because they say that they don't understand it, it doesn't matter how simple you think it is, because it's not it's not getting to the intended audience. Mm-hmm. It's just it's as simple as that, right? And I think that rightfully and happily undermines some of the undue power academics have over communities where we get to choose how we engage with communities. Because even participatory research, right? You're still choosing this neighborhood to go and ask if you could use your resources and your platform as an academic to like work with them on a problem. And even though we like to say that, you know, participatory action research, like you, you know, you're supposed to work with the community and care about their needs and they set the terms of engagement. If you don't like the terms they set, you could just walk away and go somewhere else. They don't get the option to just go and pick up a new researcher from the, you know, from the student lounge to do the same project (laughs) and help them with the same problems in their community. Um, so I think like wherever possible, we have to like undermine that like extractive relationship that we that academics usually have with community, even well-meaning people like myself, right? So yeah, that's where where that came from. Um, mm-hmm. and I think it's important for us to consider, you know, going forward that like, you know, you need to start from the needs of the people that you're that you're trying to work with and that you're talking to, and not from what you think their needs should be. One of the things that stuck out for me, can, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. Uh, was the valuing of complexity and like that struggle of uh, getting, when you're trying to engage with uh, folks uh, to value that complexity. And what stuck, what kind of came to my mind is uh, one of the reasons why people would be resistant to, resistant to that uh, complexity outside of academic, academia is uh, the rat race of capitalism. And so whereas the capitalist uh, motives, you know, like earning tenure, salary and like job security, all those types of things uh, within academia, there is that valuing of cap of complexity for the average Joe or whatever, you know, the person that's uh, going to work, uh, call a job or whatever. Uh, they've their life has kind of revolved around a simplifying of things and uh, any moment taken away to understand things is less time that they have to to earn and so uh, one way this manifests is you know the skipping of instructions you know it's like why would i bother to learn how to build this thing when i could just be building it that that's kind of one way i see it manifest and then one of the other things that stuck out to me that you mentioned uh not explicitly but what i picked up on was kind of this uh theory in action uh in the the inseparable nature that they have uh, and we've talked about it a bit before on some of our other uh, recordings with uh, about Hampton and with Frey. And I think that also kind of in talking about how to more simply or how to kind of compete on with propaganda that's more simple. And uh, while we're trying to expand the complexities, I think what you mentioned and also I'm leaning on Frey is a, uh, this kind of investigating through questions. So instead of trying to pour this complex information into into uh, uh, others that uh, may you know have some sort of need to have a better understanding of these things to improve their own material conditions, uh, just trying to engage with people to do their own investigating and find their own answers with somewhat leading questions, but not so much as to though as they feel like they're being manipulated and just in my own experience and trying to kind of relate to 
people that are less political than uh, my typical circles on Twitter or uh, in these productions was like that they uh, let's try and find the right phrasing for this uh, <laughs> in their disengagement with the political spheres they've kind of uh, they've adopted a lot of ideas that uh, kind of going back to the hegemonic myth that we mentioned before that prevent them from wanting to kind of engage with those harder questions the when when a question challenges one's entire worldview uh, it encourages people to shut down and so while i found that using uh, questions has been an effective way to try and interact with less uh, politically aware people or however you want to phrase it i have also found that once you get to that point where they have to challenge the assumptions or hegemonic myths uh, in their that are kind of fundamental to their worldview we still run into that kind of pushback and so uh, i i think that that's promising i think that you offer some very promising uh leads in that direction but i also see some of the frustrations uh that come from that and i think it's very important that we continue to to work towards these together and like you said share resources share ideas and share uh techniques and approaches that we found have worked for us in our own experiences no definitely i think um actually what you remind me of is uh uh, I can't remember all the researchers on the project, so I apologize to this large group of researchers for leaving out names, but uh, <laughs> Monica Prasad and Steve Hoffman, Monica Prasad is at my university at Northwestern, Steve Hoffman is at um, University of Toronto, and they were working with other people on a multi-year project. They published a couple papers from it that you could look up where they interviewed uh, white working class Republicans. And I think they were interviewing from the Bush era all the way up until fairly recently. Um, and they would basically ask them their views on different things. Like even like the question of like, did Bin Laden do 9-11? Or actually, sorry, that wasn't the question. Did uh, Was Saddam Hussein involved in 9-11? And then what they would do is like challenge those um, assertions, these like, you know, assertions that they've picked up in like media, you know, obviously Fox News and others, and show them evidence that this thing is wrong, and then kind of see what their response is. And so they talk in these papers about how important cognitive dissonance is, like trying to hold these contradictory ideas and like just dismissing and unseeing pieces of knowledge that challenge that worldview because it forces them into these like compromising um, positions, particularly if you're thinking like they're not smart or they're not ethical. So what you were saying, like maybe think about that, that particular work. But I think one thing that we can do to kind of get around some of that like cognitive distance or that kind of dismissiveness, not one that like double the complexity is trying to do what we can to like just create like ambient culture of things so like one thing i try to do for example and i honestly don't know how well this works but you know again these are all working ideas right we're trying to figure it out is um always refer to white people as settlers like if you want to challenge settler colonialism like calling out like the different aspects of it whenever you can is like a really important thing to do i think and i think like my me and other people particularly all the indigenous people native twitter um you know, referring to white people as settlers on a consistent basis has um, 
change the culture on there a little bit amongst the left where people have to acknowledge that status a bit more, even if they debate about what to do with it. So it's like these like ways in which like we can infringe on like the background. So like, you know, the background noise of like the American flag is everywhere by maybe, I don't know, putting up other flags or putting upside down flags or every time we see a flag when we're with people in our community, like make some negative comment about like, you know, things that we might often think don't have an impact on people um, might have an impact on as time goes on. Cause like, that's how children learn. Right. And they Mm -hmm. see their parents engaging in patterns of things all the time. Right. They'll start to often take on those patterns. If you go move to a new city and you hang out with the people in the city for long enough, you're going to pick up their accent, at least some part of it. At least that happened to me. Um, when I went down south to see my family a couple of times, like I started picking up a stronger, you know, southern black accent than I, you know, than I have living in Buffalo. And so I think that's like an, one strategy to get around that. It's like try to find the ways in which we could um, do these like low effort challenges of the system in our daily life or even in our writing. And hopefully enough of us doing that in enough places will at least prime people who aren't otherwise engaged with these ideas to be more receptive to them when they're brought to them explicitly. But, you know, again, that's like a, that's a working theory I have. And, you know, I try it and we'll, you know, see how successful it is. Uh, I definitely like it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I try to do that in my own right. I think it's challenging sometimes depending on the group that you're working with or like the person you're talking to, obviously. Um, And sometimes I've seen people just like straight up shut down. So I can imagine, you know, some some white people being called settler and then just immediately shutting down after that and and kind of um, refusing to a accept that label, um, but b refusing to then engage with that person. Um, and I I sometimes wonder. I mean, one of the things that I have found successful, at least in teaching, is trying to universalize a lot of experiences, even if that may mean kind of like flattening very big differences between people. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, in talking about, um, let's say I had a student once who, for example, was a child of Fox News uh, followers and who loved Trump. And he had, he reflected a lot of those issues in class. Um, But at the same time, he was there to learn and like he wanted to, to, I guess, kind of figure out what they were saying wrong and like what there was to learn in the larger society from other people beyond the Fox News circuit. Um, And I think that he, you know, sometimes there was, there were tensions that were built around his expressing things that like say his parents or Fox News would have said, and I would just try to universalize it very quickly, like in in a way to neutralize. So to put him, to try to put him in the position of uh, people who are expressing grievances toward this government or expressing grievances toward like white, white people or things like that. Um, I would say like, imagine, but, you know, imagine for a moment if, if this were the case for you, or even like, for example, I would try to kind of zoom out and talk about things. So when that, when that happened, this was like shortly after the Charleston shooting, the same, a few, a few months after it, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And he had said, you know, that like, maybe we should start uh, corralling uh, Muslims and keep them from coming into this country or like, you know, make them leave the country. This is kind of around when Trump was proposing the Muslim ban. This is before he was president. Um, And I basically just said, look, like if we, let's take, for example, the shooting that happened in South Carolina. So we know that there was a person who committed an act, uh, what we would classify typically 
based on its circumstances as an act of terror insofar as he used his politics to, or he used violence to express his politics and thus terrorize a community, right? Um, issues with the idea of terrorism aside. Uh, but then I, I kind of tried to make it so like, if you think about this situation, if we're going to graph, you know, superimpose what Trump is proposing to do onto the domestic situation, then are we going to then ban people from traveling from and to South Carolina? Are we going to like corral and imprison all white young men? You know, like, they, so it kind of, even though it's a very simplified way of talking about these things in a classroom setting, it allowed him to kind of then, I think, reflect on the ridiculousness of what Trump was saying, because then it affected him, right? It would be something that would affect mm. him. If I said, let's round up all the white men, he was like, well, <laughs> you know, like, so I think that <laughs> sometimes there are ways to talk about things, even if imperfect, right? Like it's not, I, again, I have issues with the idea of, or the categorization of terrorism and things like that. But I think that there are ways to at least have some sort of linguistic conversational shorthand to talk about very complex issues to then kind of reframe them so that people understand. Now, obviously, you can't do that oftentimes on Twitter because people on Twitter just are extra. And I think um, mm -hmm. it's difficult to have sometimes yep. where, where complicated conversations on a place like in a place like Twitter. But in personal interpersonal relationships, there is sometimes more room to get people to reflect on their position and reflect on like what, what something means that may seem more complicated to express in other terms. I don't know, but I, I'm, I'm always interested in hearing about the ways that other people do this. And so I think that, you know, some of the suggestions that you offered, especially with regard to hearing something over and over and having it change you, because that's certainly how I changed, right? Like I, I moved to the left with age, which is like the opposite direction of most what most people have. Um, but I moved to the left with age or further to the left, I should say, with age because of being exposed to and repeatedly exposed to these different ideas, right? Um, either from professors or from things I was reading or from friends or even things that I saw online or even being in another country and understanding their circumstances as it relates to the United States. So there's a lot of, I think there are a lot of different ways to to introduce these new ideas and it's up to us and people who have, you know, like who, who at least express some degree of um, revolutionary or radical or even just different thoughts uh, to do that. So on that note, and again, speaking of writing, I know that you have been writing a lot uh, for your dissertation, but you've also been doing some fiction writing. So I'd be curious to hear, first of all, how do you have the freaking time to do that? Um, and second of all, what it's all about, because you said that you, I've, I've seen some, some posts on your Twitter feed of like uh, illustrations and things like that, that I grew curious about. So I'd love for you to talk a bit about that. Like, what is this project? What are you doing? Um, and what is, what is sort of uh, the purpose of it if, it? if you feel like it has a purpose beyond just entertainment, if you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, first, I would go, just going back to the previous point you were making in terms of that student in your class and kind of how you approach um, getting him to kind of get out of his Fox News bubble. I appreciate that. So I think that especially in the classroom setting, like that's like prime space to do that type of work. And honestly, I was I wasn't thinking about that when I was giving my answer. But as you were talking, I'm like, yeah, like. I, that's something, you know, I think I've done without thinking about, but I think being, thinking more intentionally about it, um, like you were doing is, you know, definitely a lesson learned. I think um, what I was suggesting is probably best used with people who are like you. So like being around other black people and doing that, 
is easier because you're right. Like sellers will probably like shut down. Um, yeah. <laughs> if it's on Twitter, usually you shutting down is good for me because that means I'm not getting harassed anymore. But in real life, <laughs> like, you know, especially in educational saying that's not. So, yeah, I definitely um, just wanted to, you know, like give props for, you know, teaching that lesson, giving that perspective, because that's definitely something that I want to take with me. Um, but about the fiction writing. So actually, in a way, the fiction writing kind of fits into this conversation, including into the accessibility conversation. Um, so while writing my dissertation, I mean, I've always been somebody who's watch a decent amount of anime, even though I'm like not hardcore anime head. You know, I love video games. I love science fiction. I pretty much exclusively watch science fiction movies at this point. Um, and so, you know, I I follow a lot of like other fiction writers on Twitter. And as I was writing my dissertation, I realized like I was getting burnt out on it and I just needed to do something else. And so um, actually after going to a talk that um, Eve Edwing um, gave at Northwestern where she was talking about her um, poetry slash short story book that was that last year that came out? Electric Arches? Yeah, I think it came out yeah. last year. I think it was 2017. Um, yes. Okay. Yeah, you're right. 2017. Um, but she came to talk about the book and I figured I'd go because I already followed her on Twitter it looked interesting and just hearing her talk about it and how she melded her sociological understanding in the world with the fiction writing and creative writing she was doing was just it was beautiful right and so you know i came and thanked her for it um you know thanked her for you know doing that and um we you know talked a little bit because i was i actually like mentioned like um, an alternative to like an ending of one of her short stories and she was like oh i would like to see you write it um and i don't think she realized but like her just saying them like maybe i should go and write it and so <laughs> you know after doing a bunch of like scribbling here and there for a couple months mostly like just as a stress reliever to like get my brain off of you know my own academic work i end up coming up with the idea for the um serial novel that I'm doing right now, which is called By Any Magical Means Necessary. Obviously allusion to, you know, Malcolm X. Um and yeah, the I guess the purpose of that story, like before I even talk about like what this is about and like whatnot, the purpose of it for me as is like kind of grown is to speculate on the complexity and the mess of decolonization. So, you know, we talk a lot about decolonization and we even been talking today about like in some as ways, aspects of what it could look like. But like, you know, all those conversations are usually like about either how do we get people angry enough to revolt or what do we do after we won? But mm -hmm. nobody talks about the mess in the middle that happens between we've decided that this we need to overthrow the system or that our goal is to overthrow the system and then like actually getting to the other side like intact in some way and so this um serial novel is about the mess in the middle so to say of how we get from point a to point b um and it's set in 2038 it follows a trio of characters um, with the main character, Amina Fernandez, being the standpoint character. So the whole story is written from her perspective. So she's a 25-year-old, um, sorry, I'm 
I've been doing world building stuff today, so I'm thinking about a whole bunch of details that I'm like, I'm not sure which ones I should talk about or not because I don't want to spoil it. Um, the rest of the story for people who haven't read it. This is one of the challenges writing serial fiction, right? Um, you have to hold spoilers. But um, Amina is a black woman who lives in Buffalo. Um, she's an archivist who's just graduated from college who works at Buffalo History Museum. And she's like, you know, has an activist background, and whatnot. In some ways, she kind of mirrors my own background while also me taking aspects of other people that I know and kind of making this character. But she's like a quintessential do-gooder. She, you know, wants to, you know, see good in the world. She sees herself as a revolutionary like me. She comes from an activist family. Um, and she has a friend, Terrence, who used to be a hustler, got out the game. He's a couple years older than her. They live in the same class. So they're kind of like neighborhood friends um, mm-hmm. that, you know, just kind of grew into like a deeper friendship. And then she has another friend, Onika, who's a Nigerian immigrant who went to high school with her and college with her. And so they're friends through that. And so the story starts with them at African Liberation Day um, at a protest. And this is where the science fiction element comes in. And the police have basically decided that they didn't want to let this protest go to the waterfront where there was a massacre that happened a couple of years ago where police killed protesters and you wanted to commemorate them. They had a permit and they got refused. So when the people like got like mad about it, we're getting ready to fight the cops. Um, this man comes out from the crowd um, wearing a hoodie and he ha- has his device on his arm and he basically essentially uses magic to create earthquake, which kills a bunch of the police officers. Now, the problem for everybody with that um, and the man disappears, right? So nobody knows who he is, where he came from, why he did it. All they know is that this happened and the police essentially blame the black population, the people who are there, but also the people in the city for what happened. The problem for them is that, um, and this is like my sociology background, I kind of extrapolated what would happen if things didn't get better from now. And so in this fictional future, right, you have the Republican Party, the Democratic Party doesn't exist anymore. There's this organization called the Patriotic Front, which is the main like ruling party in the United States. And they came about almost exclusively about white anxiety um, of both coming a demographic minority, but also the growing resistance from indigenous and black people. So all the resistance we're doing today to with the concentration camps and the border and police and cities indigenous people fighting the pipeline it intensifies and eventually the state kind of locks things down right um and so there's laws now in this world where if you attack a police officer under any circumstances it's basically a life sentence they treat them all as a felony no matter what um, and as a capital offense and so they're trying to you know secure their hold on the world so to say. But at the same time, like China, Russia, and all these other um, countries have economically risen over time and challenged the United States like international hegemony. So they feel squeezed on both sides, right? And so now you have this state that's very paranoid about security, both internally and externally. And now you have this mysterious Black person who has a power that nobody's never seen before who just attacked and killed a bunch of police officers for an unknown reason. And so naturally, white people overreact, lock down the city. And what eventually happens, just the, the short synopsis, is that Amin and her friends, because they were at the protest and they escaped, um, they decide like that they need to fight back. 
And so they end up organizing um, a group of local black folks and they eventually end up starting a rebellion. And I don't want to spoil anything else story because there's particularities, but the <laughs> idea is for us to think about um, what happens when you like actually try to overthrow the system. What are the like moral and ethical concerns of like starting a revolution? Like I look at look in history, like part of why I'm interested in this like I look at the history of like all these like famous revolutionaries who sacrificed everything for these movements, and I just imagine like what was like Malcolm X thinking like when he was doing some of the stuff he was doing? Like, did he, did he, was he worried about like the unintended consequences of like a speech he would have given that people would take it the wrong way and something that he didn't want happen would happen? Or looking at like, you know, uh, Wendy Mandela, right? High of apartheid, like we know the controversy around um, some of the activities she engaged in against the seller state, but like, what goes into people making those decisions? What kind of weight does that put on people? Because we celebrate these revolutionaries, um, and you know, unfortunately, a lot of them have didn't survive the movements that they started or worked in. But even the ones that did, I just can't imagine the the toll it takes on people to like fight mm-hmm. these struggles. And I wanted to like explore that in this writing through this Amina character that like she's carrying her and her friends are like carrying the weight of their people on their shoulders, like them deciding to revolt. They're making it in one way, they're making a decision for everybody else. Right. Cause it's not only them that has to deal with the consequences, just like the man who, you know, committed that attack. Um, and the, you know, what you, I, okay. One small spoiler is that um, what they find out is that the technology of demand use is the same technology um that the government has already been developing so in response the government starts to deploy their own um troops and police officers equipped with this magic technology and basically things spiral from there right um and it's also thinking of i also want to think about like the use of weapons and um weapon proliferation which becomes a big part of the story later on as other countries are responding to you know, magic existing. Like, what do we do when people have a handheld technology that could blow up a tank? You know, that just throws everything into turmoil. So there's like a bunch of these little questions I'm exploring in in the fiction novel. And then also it's just fun writing about black people killing fascist police officers. I'll be <laughs> honest. <laughs> so that's yeah. also a big driver for it, right. It's just like writing about us like being able to resist and fight back. Um, and then something that is going to come up later in the story is our relationship with indigenous people and like thinking about how, like, if we're going to create like this, you know, new order after we hopefully overthrow the seller state, like, what could it look like? And so that's like another big world building part is just me speculating on, on what that world could look like and what like complications will come out of it that we're going to have to make hard decisions about. So Right now, I'm on. I've finished chapter six recently, um, and I'm writing chapter seven right now. And my hope is to be able to like write a chapter per month. And I've been posting it for free on Wattpad, um, just because I want people to be able to read it. So I didn't. I originally was um, selling it like as an ebook, um, and just publishing the books in progress. That everybody gets like a the free updates as they come along. Um, but I decided it'd be better to do a, a freemium model. So that the maximum amount of people could like 
read it. And then if you want to like get early access to the drafts and the chapters, you can subscribe to um, subscribe to my Patreon. So I try. I hope you know, that's like a good balance between like you know getting some support for my writing, but also um having as many people as possible be able to actually read it because i know everybody don't have the resources or even a credit card right to sign up for a patreon account or buy books online so i wanted to be you know sensitive to that right i'm sure they appreciate that and it's it's always good like with less pocket projects for example nothing is behind a paywall at all like everything is free our content is free we put Mm -hmm. free books out so that's really important for us and so it's great to always have on a guest that also believes in that as like base principle um i just wanted to say really quickly that you i look forward to your book being turned into a movie with a white protagonist as uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man i mean i'm just thinking like uh you oh, know yeah, scarlett the, johansson baby <laughs> right <laughs> or like uh oh my gosh what's the name of the girl who was in um Oh my gosh, I'm blanking. Uh, the The Hunger Games. What's her name? Um, oh my, uh, Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah. yeah, Jennifer Lawrence. So like the original character in the Hunger Games is like racially ambiguous or like indigenous or something. Um, mm. she's from Appalachia, and the from when you read it, it seems like she's supposed to be like Melungeon. Yeah, like olive skin. You know the mix. What they call exactly. So like. People who are, this is what, I mean, I, this might be politically incorrect these days, but they generally, they generally referred to them as Melungeons back in the day, but it's basically a mix in Appalachia, people who are white, indigenous, and black. Um, and so from the way she's portrayed in the book and from her location, you make the assumption that maybe she's supposed to be multiracial. Um, but in fact, in the film, she is blonde and I mean, they paint, they, they, uh, they do dye her hair at least, so. You know, at least, um, <laughs> at least <laughs> they gave her a box dye job. So you gotta, you gotta see the silver lining when you can. Um, Rich, <laughs> Richard, did you have any questions before we close? I know I just wanted to round out with this, but if there was anything else that was pending that you wanted to talk about, feel free to ask. I'm very excited about uh, looking into this uh, this novel that you're. Or... Uh, I don't know what the the writing terminology is for it, but the, what you're what you're working on the project, and I've 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 always been a fan of sci-fi and fiction in general, uh, even more so uh, as of late. And I've noticed one of the things that I've kind of related to, and I think that your book or that your writing highlights is how sci-fi and fiction gives us the storytelling gives us an opportunity to imagine both like new ideas for systems and uh, like, and how to address challenges as your writing kind of uh, focuses on. And also I think it offers the opportunity to go back a little bit to your earlier point about like, for instance, always referring to white people as settlers is when you create these fictional worlds, you can do things like that in which the, in order to engage with the material, the, the reader is, is forced but sometimes willingly because they don't see they don't see themselves in that character yet, and so they don't see it as an attack on themselves, or or they see it as an attack on this fictional character. And it's only later through uh, after developing personal relations or like developing understandings and relationships with these characters that they realize, oh, this character has a lot of parallels to this thing in my real life, and this character has a lot of parallels to this thing in my real life, and this way that they're interacting these feelings or emotions that were stirred 
don't match with how I would treat it in my life. And now I'm, I have to try and reconcile those two things. And I think that gives people an opportunity to do it on their own where they don't feel like they're being confronted uh, like in a more of a Twitter format where people are worried about, oh, am I going to look dumb at the end of this con or, you know, am I going to look uh, like I'm uh, inferior in some way at the end of this discussion? And so it's more important to win than it is to, you know, have a dialogue. This gives an opportunity for people to, or fictional stories gives an opportunity for people to open up those dialogues with, uh, in places where they're more comfortable rather than when they're, where they feel challenged. And then also to disassociate themselves a bit from these issues and discuss the issues as the, the issues present themselves rather than how they personally relate to how those outcomes. So like the salvation of colonialism and capitalism is kind of more important to an individual who has built a life dependent on them than it is to a fictional character that they may or may not have those types of connections to. And so that I, I really love the idea of, uh, what you're doing with yours and uh, I'm definitely interested in reading. And then I just also think that that's another great opportunity to go back a bit to what we were talking about before is a ways to kind of present these more complicated ideas uh, in ways that people want or want to engage with the complexity rather than shy away from the complexity of the ideas. No, I really appreciate that. Both of you, for, especially for your enthusiasm for the project, because that's one of the things um you know, I'm an academic writer. I'm not trained as a fiction writer. So I, you know, just kind of assume like, you know, I'm still new at this. I'm still working at this. Um, and I, you know, don't expect you to be super enthused about it um, because I try not to have that kind of ego. But yeah, it does feel good like to know that, you know, the work like is and can resonate with people. And actually, uh, Richard, to speak to the your point about analogies, this is a very, very tiny rant. One of the reasons why I wrote this book the way I wrote it, where it's like set in near future in a world that's just like ours, except this new technology gets created, um, is because in science fiction, we have done the people have done a very good job of using the analogies to talk about social issues. But I think particularly recently, um, it has gone far enough where people like the analogies have gone so far in a lot of examples in media that people don't even get a chance to do that kind of like, this is not how we react to real life because it's so like foreign from their experience or it's so vague of an analogy that they like think of themselves as like being the victims, right? They don't see their own mm -hmm. complicity in the system that they're seeing happening on screen. Um, and so I wanted to, I guess, try to prevent that, like the, that version of the thing happening um, by trying to set it in a world that's like, far enough from ours where you can have that reflection, but not so far that you can like 100% disassociate yourself from like what we're talking about there. And um, that kind of like leaning on analogies in science fiction, you have a lot of like stories about races, like different races and species fighting each other, like, you know, over, you know, space and whatnot. One of the things I've never seen in science fiction is like the race war. Like the stereotypical race war that we talk about on Twitter and joke about sometimes, mm -hmm. um, like happening in the United States if everything goes left. Um, it's interesting that everybody avoids that story. It's a very obvious science fiction story that can be written that like everything goes bad in the future and then all the races fight each other. Um, and so I wanted, so basically the story is like 
that race war story, but being critical of the terms on which it was like happening, right? It was not just like uh, the purge kind of like bloodbath with a vague critique of society, but like actually seriously considering like if stuff gets that bad, like what's the cost for everybody um, involved in that? And I think it's important that like, you know, we don't shy away from like some of these like, you know, might be too close to reality kind of like science fiction stories and whatnot. So just to add on to, you know, what you're saying about the power of science fiction, I, I really think that um, in the mainstream anyway, we're like underutilizing the power of it in some ways by avoiding like some of these concepts. Um, and I think like I want to go back to like, you know, some of the early, especially like early Afrofuturist stories, which are very much set in these like mundane you know, real world settings, but with like this added science fiction element that still give you that room for reflection, like away from yourself, but not so far that like somebody could like misappropriate the message, you know? Yeah, that's, uh, that's it's wonderful to hear that you've thought about all that in the, in the writing and uh, it makes me look forward to it even more. And like, I, uh, I think. There was one more thing, but I'll, I'll let Wendy get in there if she had anything she wanted to add quickly while I try and recapture it. Yeah, I just wanted to say that I think the reason we don't see that much science fiction about race wars is because race war is already happening, um, except that only one side is firing the gun. <laughs> like that's the situation True. we're in. If you think about if you think about like who is attacking whom right now, um, and if we're to looking at like the systems that currently operate and like the growth of fascism around the world and whatnot. Um, for the most part, you see people with immense economic power and in cases of, of you know, de de depending on the, si the society, obviously, but um, groups that have racial privilege, religious privilege, et cetera, are all, are, are all, who are in the majority already um, and who have uh, rights and, and privileges and whatnot and recognition already on the basis of that, um, they are the ones who are, who are still attacking, you know, marginalized groups. So I would say that uh, we can't imagine a, a future race war because we're living in it. <laughs> like that, that's the <laughs> way I would I would put that. Unfortunately, it's sad, but I think that that's, that's what we see. I mean, I don't know what else to call our current um, situation, at least, at least on the racial front. Like, obviously, we can have a discussion about capitalism and things like that. And I think race, obviously, is an articulation of that kind of power. Um, but I, I do see, you know, I mean, being perfectly honest um i do see one one group of people definitely actively attacking other groups of people it's just that we haven't gotten to the point quite yet where we're attacking back um at least with physical violence um hopefully we get to a point where all the violence stops but time will tell uh, i just i remembered it helped uh, wendy your thoughts help remind me is that i think part of also uh, why we see what we were talking about in uh, science fiction outside of uh work like yours is that the writers are kind of predominantly white liberal men to the white conservative range and uh, i think a lot of the same issues that we run in with uh, politically trying to open people's minds to the ideas of uh, societies without c capitalism or with different systems of ownership and all those types of more radical ideas is the same reason like it reflects itself in science fiction in that uh, they don't want to write something that writes away the world that they understand and think should continue. And so like their, their comfort, their, the perpetuation of their quality of life is important or the, the character that they see themselves in, in the story. And so 
uh, oftentimes it's limited by the liberal perspective of trying to preserve capitalism, trying to preserve some of the nationalism and some of these other ideas that uh, pervade our understanding of the world as it exists. And uh, when we try and imagine a new world, it's sometimes limited by things that it, I think it shouldn't be limited by rather than the material conditions, which I think are valid limiters in imagining new uh, new or different worlds. And so I, I hope to see more real representation and not just, you know, superficial uh, cosmetic representation on neoliberal ideas, but like, you know, radicals entering into the sci-fi space uh, more prominently and uh, getting the attention that I think they deserve with radical ideas being presented in these types of ways where, as you mentioned, that you can step back from them enough to have that reflection, but not so far as they get misappropriated and uh, the, the oppressor sees themselves in the oppressed rather than the oppressor. Yeah, I think both of y'all make really good points there. It makes me think that, like, you know, to both the idea that, you know, people don't write about the race war because it's already happening, basically. But then also, like, they, you know, don't want to see the world get ran away. Um, you know, I think the important difference is, like, these folks, they don't want to see, they don't want, they don't want to see a story in which they're, in which somebody's shooting back at them, right. basically, mm -hmm. is, I think, the best way to, like, kind of boil that down to its essence. Like, stories of, of people of color, like, shooting back is, like, the one that you never really see. And I think um, there's a couple of novels I'm thinking of that like do closer to reality, like racial oppression analogies, but they all in in like the oppressed people doing a thing that ends up making everybody magically equal instead mm -hmm. of doing a thing that gives them the means to like actively resist. So yeah, no, both of those points really got me thinking about some stuff. Thank you for that. We do what we can around here. Um, <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us. Um, Absolutely. I, I would love to have you back on to talk more about not only your research, but obviously the book. Um, so we might be in touch. Uh, I don't know. Give us some time because we want to sit and reflect on a lot of this. Um, but I definitely would love to have you back on to talk more about it. And again, thank you so much for giving us a bit of your time. Um, and for helping us kind of think through some otherwise very difficult topics, uh, but in a short period of time. So much appreciated for that. Thank you, William. No, thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Left Pocket Project podcast. By the way, don't forget to give us a share, a like, and a rating on iTunes. And to be sure to check out our Patreon, and that's patreon.com slash leftpoc. And find us on social media at leftpoc, L-E-F-T-P-O-C. Have a good one.